Welcome back to Oh God, What Now? The precocious darts player of podcasts hitting the bullseye of politics every single week. I'm Andrew Harrison and I'm 16 years old. On today's show, we're covering all the stories that we were all too full, drunk or tired to notice in the last two weeks, from the Liz Truss Honours List to the blink and you'll miss it return of Dominic Cummings. Plus, we're going to look ahead at the stories that will shape 2024. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, in with this sort of thing, out with that sort of thing. Everybody's been doing their ins and outs lists for 2024 for some reason, and we just don't want to be left out. Now let's say hello to our small but perfectly formed panel. First up, commentator Alex Andreo. Hello, Alex. Happy hello. New Year. Happy New Year, welcome to, back to, Welcome back to the studio. Yeah. So, so you watched this week's Reform UK press conference, so we didn't have to. And apart from the very comforting <laughs> bit where Ben Habib confirmed that Reformers Platform does not involve armed um, conflict <laughs> with the EU. Good to know. Thanks for that, Ben. Uh, what were the key takeaways, Alex? Um, the key takeaway, I think, was that Nigel Farage was a no-show. Yes. Um, it was or, a bit like the Superman movie, wasn't it? Superman, if you're out there, yeah, save us, there. said Tice. Um, because I think there was, it was widely expected, actually, without them having directly briefed it out, they did say it would be um, Richard Tice and a special guest. Dave Grohl. Uh, and, and I don't think that the person introducing Richard Tice, Alex Phillips, or Ben Habib, uh, revealed as the candidate for Peter Bones by election, mm -hmm. basically, I don't think they would have been the special guest, right? Because, because everyone knew that they would also be there. Um, so everyone was expecting Farage, and Farage didn't show up. Um, which left Richard Tice with having to answer loads of questions about why isn't <laughs> Nigel Farage there. What it means, I do not know. It could be that he doesn't uh, want to get involved until the last possible minute so that he can keep making money of his other yeah. ventures, as it were. Um, although, I mean, Richard Tice is a presenter on GB News, so being, like, being leader of the party doesn't stop him from also having a GB News job. I, I don't know. I think um, the, the one thing we know for sure is that he will not be standing as an MP. Richard yeah. Tice did confirm that. Um, so but, uh, yeah, no, no eighth humiliation for Nigel Farage. Eighth time on He won't be submitting himself to mere mortals like <laughs> us. But it's like, because the core of reform and the GB News universe is so cornball, it's like it doesn't work until, unless you turn up at the last minute and go, you're expecting me? <laughs> In a kind of like crappy WWF style reveal. Yes, with some folding chairs, bashing people with a folding chair. No, the whole thing was a very, very weird damp squib, mm. basically. It was like... You brought us all out here for this. <laughs> <laughs> it just thought it made me think of you know Alan Partridge, Lynn Roger Moore's cancelled on us again. You know, yeah. <laughs> Zoe Grunewald is the brand new political correspondent at the Independent. Happy New Year, new job, new you, Zoe. Thank you. Happy New Year. Very exciting. Mm -hmm. um, so, in your new capacity as political correspondent at the Independent, do you agree? with former Conservative Party chairman Jake Berry that Easter eggs are out too bloody early <laughs> and something should be bloody well done about it. No, actually. Easter eggs are my favourite chocolate <laughs> in the whole world and I'm not just saying that. In, in fact... In January? 
Whenever. I think they should be out all year round. I think people should get given them. I think like the milkman, people should have Easter eggs delivered to them every single day. Do you stock up at Easter? I do. So I honestly, I have one of my ex-boyfriends when he was wooing me, bought me a crate of Easter egg, uh, of mini eggs. Oh, you don't love them that much then. I, I, no, no, well, he stopped providing them. That's obviously why we broke up. Um, no, he's, uh, well, apart from him being completely and utterly wrong, it's a uh, ridiculous thing to concentrate on. Does he not have better things to be tweeting about, talking to his constituents about, um, than putting this video on Twitter from a drizzly car park outside of Sainsbury's, having been absolutely... Just furious at the fact that Easter eggs, uh, mini eggs, are hitting the the shelves so early. Now I'm not aware that Sir James Jacob Gilchrist Ferry has ever complained that you don't say Christmas. They don't say Christmas anymore. They won't let you say. But it seems to be, you know, from the kind of right wing populist thing, it's a bit weird to say they won't let you say Christmas anymore, but also say Easter's coming too early. Make your mind up. Yes. How Christian do you want to be? Yeah, it does feel like it's sort of slightly a culture war thing, although it's a really weird... I, th- I think leave the mini eggs out of the culture war, please, Jake. But I also wonder it's if late. it's just... Too it's late. too late, they're in there they're now. They're woke now. <laughs> but I, I just wonder if it's maybe just a means of grabbing engagement, trying to get people retweeting him, you know, has he got his eye on something? I don't know, it's all very strange. But this this debate actually keeps coming up about mini eggs. I've, the same thing happened last year. Down with the woke yoke. <laughs> Pint of wine, anybody? <laughs> We're going to need it. Uh, and we have one in the studio. Listen, um, in our last show of 2023, we bemoaned the festive period for its lack of news. How wrong could we be? This week, the beast is slowly waking up and making the same noise about stopping the boats, getting rid of inflation and pints of wine. We're going to do a bit of a roundup because I feel like, you know, you turn your eye away for a minute and madness escapes into the world. Yes. Alex, Rishi Sunak starts the year by claiming to have cleared the backlog of, quotes legacy asylum cases, which is something he promised to do in December 2022. There has been a lot of creative accounting here, hasn't there? Yeah, not so much creative accounting as as creative Mm rebranding. So 35,000 cases have been deemed (laughs) non-substantive. What does that mean? (laughs) Um, 17,000 were deemed withdrawn which can be when the Home Office basically doesn't get a reply to a letter. But obviously those can be revived, you know. Like... So that's fifty. That's half of them, 52,000, nearly half of them. Non-substantive um, and withdrawn. Yeah, there's more. Four, four and a half thousand cases have been labelled complex, which apparently, <laughs> which apparently takes them out of the backlog. The legacy yeah. backlog, which applies only to the 22nd of... All right, OK. Yeah, and... The asylum backlog itself has been rebranded. Any cases after June 2022 are now the flow backlog. Oh. The flow backlog. Yeah. That sounds suspiciously sewage yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, don't link it in the public mind to the water so, companies, it's Richie. I mean, it's a bad idea. It, in, in fairness, I think this is the most relatable aspect of Sunak ever. Mm. His approach to his to-do list is something I can well, really get on board with. Where to you change go, the colour Well, that was never going to happen. I shouldn't have put that on. That's basically done. So yeah. This is basically done. Oh, this is definitely done. Yeah. The so, dog has yeah. nearly been walked. <laughs> the dishes are in the sink. The dog walk was too complex. Yes. I think 2024 could be the year of reclassifying things off your to-do list. Yeah, right? you, you never actually have to do them. Yeah. You just complex. That email is too complex. It's, I mean, to, to add a, a shade of darkness, 
the most important figure released in those stats is that deaths by suicide among asylum yeah. um, seekers have doubled in that reporting period. Yeah, so, so it's, I mean, behind the... But that inanity. still gets them off the backlog, you see, so... It's mm. just horrible. I mean, the backlog of new applications is now, I think, bigger than the backlog of legacy applications, isn't it? It's yes. in the same ballpark. Well, look, I mean, it's a nonsense to be talking about stuff like that. So the only measure that matters is the rolling total of undecided applications, right? Yes. That's the only measure by which governments, generally speaking, not just with asylum, but in any kind of administrative context where a decision is required, the only way to judge how behind you are mm. is by the rolling total yeah. of cases you still have to decide. And the rolling total of cases is about 110,000, which is pretty near the total it was in, in June 2022. So, I mean, the government has barely made a dent. Um, they will presented favorably to themselves, because if we've learned one thing about Sunak in the last year is that he has no compunction about lying. Mm -hmm. um, he actually lies with the best of them. Um, he's been slapped down by the statistical authority several times, and he just keeps rolling this stuff out. Um, his big problem is actually reform, UK, yeah. um, because their lever for getting in those seats, for taking votes away from them, is that the Conservatives have be betrayed you over immigration. And so in his um, presser today, Richard Tice was banging this drum really quite a lot. That, yeah. you know, they're lying about the statistics when they say they've cleared the backlog. Really, they have done no such thing. Um, and so, yeah, so they will face opposition from GB News and Reform UK. So what, sco this. what score are you giving this for a proactive news presentation and turd polishing? <laughs> um, reflecting on what's gone before, I would say 7 out of 10. Knowing how much worse lies ahead, I would say 5 out of 10, just to give ourselves room for this dramatic arc to develop. Because I think it will get a lot fucking worse, by the way. Yeah. I don't know if you saw the campaigning video on behalf of uh, Susan Hall on social media today. I have missed that opportunity. <laughs> so um, the Conservatives, um, the the Tottenham office, which mm. because I think headquarters have actually <laughs> washed their hands mm. off Susan the, the Hall. Tottenham Conservatives, they're a bit like they're a bit wild, aren't they? Yeah, they're, 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 they're feral. Yeah. They're crazy. So, so they they're the big Susan Hall supporters, and they put out this video. Um, where they're saying vote for Susan Hall um, to retake our streets from Khan's crime wave. That's the quote. And the video is of like CCTV of crimes being committed, the first one of which is a car crashing into a jewellery store and then a robbery, which is something that happened five years ago. Mm. Mm. And like the perpetrator was caught within days and, and was sentenced to 10 years in jail mm in January 2020. Hmm. And so I I genuinely think this year we'll see the Conservatives really plumb new lows. Um, yeah. They will go there with their campaign. We're in places where we didn't think they would. So on this thing of redefining um, partial success as total success and <laughs> redefining doing nothing as doing something, 
are we just being naive in the room? You know, if, you know, if if you've got a friendly press, just saying something is true, is that the same as making it true when you're completely concerned with the air war, as it were, and absolutely unconcerned with the reality on the ground? Such as, for instance, declaring that Rwanda is a safe country mm. magically. I, they're, they're very much hoping that by just saying over and over again that Rwanda is a safe country, people will believe that Rwanda is a safe country. Uh, we, we, you know, we have never thought that the UK government would lie to us about something like that. But of course, as you were just saying, we've, there's a precedent for that now. Yeah. They're even trying to basically put it in law to say yeah. that it is uh, a safe country. But it doesn't matter because the facts are it is not a safe country. Um, already, um, asylum seekers in Rwanda have said that they've been threatened by officials about being returned to countries where they'd come from. Uh, that was the whole point of the Supreme Court ruling that it couldn't be a safe country because asylum seekers would be at risk of being returned to unsafe places. So we already know that that just simply isn't what's happening there. Mm. Um, we know that the democracy is under threat there, that the president um, puts his opponents in prison and they disappear. You know, there's all kinds of things mm. that if you look at uh, Amnesty International's list of things that make countries unsafe, undemocratic, places we shouldn't be doing deals with, Rwanda's up there. So the facts are it isn't safe. I don't think we will see the full extent of how safe it is until actually one day a plane does or doesn't take off. And the problem there is, would you have accurate reporting of a disenfranchised group like asylum seekers, what their experiences would be there? Would you have journalists mm, there being yeah, able to report? Well, Probably not. I mean, so, what you will have is a sort of some sort of undercover sting mm. in four years' time yeah. that shows... You know, everyone is being treated absolutely appallingly. That's and and we'll get reports leaking out yeah. as well. But I think basically they're hoping that maybe actually the flight probably won't ever take off under their watch anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's likely <laughs> that this legislation will be pushed into the long grass. There'll be ping pong, there'll be back and forth, and then there'll be an election. And it'll be up to Labour to undo it, which they may well do. Yeah. So... Um, also, for the base that they're trying to appeal, they don't really care if Rwanda's safe or not. They just see mm. it as a deterrent... We've got to a point where we are dehumanising asylum seekers so much in discourse that we barely even think of whether or not they should be safe. Um, mm. Arguably, some of the uh, places we've put them here in the UK are not safe uh, when there's outbreaks of disease and um, yeah. asylum seekers are taking their own lives. Alex, the Christmas present nobody wanted was the unexpected and extremely brief return of Dominic <laughs> Cummings, who held two secret election talks with Sunak, and apparently it didn't go very well. Cummings told Sunak he'd rather see the Tories lose than continue in office without prioritising what's important. Why did Sunak think that this was a good idea at all? Despair. I mean, he's tried everything else. Mm -hmm. um, so he's turned to the only other person he knows that kind of wants stuff for them before. Mm. Um I mean, I find it interesting that Number 10 have not actually denied the story. They've quibbled over the details. They've said it wasn't a firm job offer yeah. and stuff like that. But they haven't actually denied the story, yeah. which, according to Cummings, is that Sunak told him to work for him secretly. Yes. In exchange, and I quote from um, his substack. In, in return for a promise that I could come to number 10 and sort out my priorities after the election. I'm surprised that Sunak didn't take that offer because the things that Cummings cares about, Sunak doesn't. Cummings is not that bothered about maths. And smoking, you know, or indeed the economy. He wants to rewire Yeah, he wants Whitehall. to dismantle the state, basically, which I, I suspect Sunak doesn't particularly... Yeah. He's not particularly against, but... 
I, I think for me, the secret is that, you know, these conversations were going on while the second module of the COVID inquiry was mm. going on. Yeah. Revealing the dysfunction, precisely this kind of backroom deal causes yeah. and how many thousands of people paid for it. Mm. And still, they've learned nothing. Mm. They're still doing this kind of idiotic deal in the background. Maybe it's an instance where, like, for once, Rishi Sunak has done what a normal person would do, which is think, have a moment of clarity. Why the hell would I want to have anything to do with that maniac? Perhaps it really, fact for once. Well, no, because he did want to have something to do with him just secretly. Oh, pulled out. You know, he didn't want anyone to know. Yeah, exploratory talks. What did you think, Zoe? I just think how terrible Sunak's judgment has been revealed to be because mm. why would you trust Dominic Cummings to do anything in secret? Yeah. The man will absolutely hang your dirty laundry out to dry <laughs> in, on his blog in front of everybody. As it's so did. naive. Yeah. So naive to think you could have a secret conversation with Dominic Cummings unless you were absolutely prepared to give him exactly what he wanted. Yeah. I mean, essentially, we should have heard nothing from Cummings after the point he walked out of number 10 down the street with that cardboard box with, yeah. you know, his potted ficus and... His von Klauswitz Funko Pop and, and sticking and on the top. You know, world's yeah. number one forecaster <laughs> mug yeah. and, and Executive his poster of Rick Astley. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. We should have heard nothing from him after that. And the rest has been his reviving mm. his own story his own sort of mythology with stuff like this mm. so why sunak would approach him and say shall we have a quiet word you might as well give it to the times as an interview <laughs> it's also totally going to bolster all the johnson comeback yeah. supporters the nadine dorries is who absolutely think that sunak <laughs> was somehow involved in ousting boris johnson you know very involved and now Conspiring with Dominic Cummings. I mean, it's a hot. It's going to be. It's the plot. You know, it's the plot. Yes. I, it's the plot. Yes. I just can't wait to be rid of these people. They're wearing me out. The, this will be the. This will be the the outline for the plot too. Two, yeah. 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 Well, Zoe, on a similar theme, um, one moment over Christmas that had us all choking on our quality streets was uh, Liz Truss's honours list mm. announced on New Year's Eve. Eve, eleven nominations, one for every four days she was in charge. Tell us about the lucky winners, Matthew Elliott, John Moynihan and Ruth Porter. Yeah, so uh, John Moynihan is a Conservative donor. Matt Elliott is the ex-Vote Leave chief. And Ruth Porter is a former senior aide to trust. So all people we are absolutely, I'm sure, oh God, what now, listeners, yeah. delighted for their contribution to public life. Uh, I mean, it is just rewarding your friends, isn't it? It's. Yeah. Um, I mean, especially the Conservative donor, they give you some money for your campaign and you say... I'm Prime Minister, I'll give you a nice spot on this list of honours. I mean, it's just totally see-through. And to be fair on Liz Truss, um, she's not the only one who's who's done it. So why would she want to be I that? don't want to be fair on Liz Truss, <laughs> yeah. but for the, for the sake of balance, yeah. you know. Um, is now become what the honour system is. And it's a shame because the honour system, I think, can have a really valuable place in public life, rewarding people who have actually done yeah. a good job, public service, who have expertise in a particular subject that's useful for society. But this is just kind of cronyism, really. Well, there was only one person I could find on their list of, of 11 people who wasn't <laughs> just a straightforward political connection. It was Shirley Conran of the Maths Anxiety Trust, which is like... 
possibly that's going to help Sunak. I don't know, maths anxiety. When asked to defend these honours, Trust said she was delighted that these champions for the conservative causes of freedom, limited government and a proud and sovereign Britain have been suitably honoured. No attempt to portray anything to do with public service, just pure partisanship. But that's that's who she is and that's yeah. what she runs on. Her whole campaign, her whole shtick is this ideological... Uh, anti-woke, small stay, libertarian kind yeah. of... But isn't there a political kind of... Isn't there a political advantage in portraying that as in the public interest? You could cast these people, you could say they did what the British people wanted for all of us. This is where Britain needs to be going. Not just simply, my gang won, yaboo. Yeah, but yeah, you could. And maybe if she had a better comms team around her or a bit more... Mm political nous than she would. But I think now she's totally in that bubble of just being that sort of populist, libertarian, small state, woke. Those are the only things she can talk about. So hand, hand well, in those, hand with... those are the only things any, any of them can talk yeah. about. Yeah. I think that that's the overarching theme of all this stuff that happened. It's a sort of confirmation that they are a party that is completely out of ideas. Mm. You know, they have the desire to keep hold of power without any kind of idea of what they want yeah. to do with it. And mm. you get that so strongly from them now. It's, you know, beyond rewarding their mates and mm. and sort of taking revenge on their enemies, they have no mm. idea of what they might want to do with power mm. for the country. And the, None. And the only way you can retain power in that kind of system is by rewarding loyalty and kicking out dissenters. And that's mm. basically what she's saying this is. Yeah. You know, as you say, there's no vision. There's no, actually, this person really contributes to public life. It's this person supported me, so here's that pro but, spot yeah, in the but Lord, you, you can't you. even reward people by saying, okay, here's here's your area, go and work in it, go and fulfil your vision of what you think ought to be happening in this particular policy area because nothing is going to no. happen. Hand in hand with Boris Johnson's list of Charlotte Owen, Sean Bailey, Ben Hoochin, was 2023 the worst year for honours since Lloyd George was flogging them out of a suitcase? It just feels like it gets worse and worse, doesn't it? And it's yeah. not just honours, it's it's uh, standards in public life. Every year they seem to get worse under yeah. this deteriorating government. And I completely agree with Alex, they're just out of ideas. And it's now become such a power grab of these... Um, ex-conservative MPs, uh, ex-conservative prime ministers, that they're just rewarding their mates. They, it's all they can do. On the upside, is 11 nominations. That's one for every four days. Eventually, we'll all get one as well. So Here's you know, hoping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Alex, we've got to talk about those pints of champagne, which have become, <laughs> for some reason, totemic. The mythical Churchill bottle has been touted as some kind of a Brexit benefit, even though no manufacturers have said they'll produce the bottles, let alone put wine or champagne into it. Explain why manufacturers won't want to make 568 milliliter bottles of champagne in particular. Well, I'd love to, but they might, you know. Are you sure? Are you well, sure people I, are going to buy new bottles can I just tell and you, a new manufacturing line and lay them down for two now, years? There is now, there will be soon, some sort of nationalist market for stuff. Right, where people will buy these bottles because they become some sort of nationalist symbol, and I I have to think there is some really shit producer of English sparkling wine somewhere that can't flog it mm. any other way. But this is just an open invitation to just 
put it in pint <laughs> bottles and stick a, a, a union flag on it, and that'll sell it. So I'm not sure it's not going to happen. I'll be amazed, I think though. we're actually at the stage where we might see stuff like that begin to happen. But you can't just you can't just make champagne in a beer bottle. I mean, it requires special thickness of glass. You've got to, the champagne method requires jamming a cork in and keeping it very very cold for a very long period of time. I know. You can't right? just like pour a load. Of, you can't put like fizzy apple juice and a squirt of vodka in it and call it British champagne. Well, you can now. You can now. All right, fair enough. <laughs> there, are, there are no no universal food standards anymore, so you could call it whatever you want. Listeners, if you find a bottle of British, a pint of British champagne in the wild, then do let us know. As a matter of fact, didn't they, they announced something like that just before... Uh, just before Christmas, didn't they say that they you anou- could now call... They, a while ago, they announced that there was going to be a new appellation for British sparkling wine. It was going to be British Fizz. But No, but also like... they announced that you could call wine things that were too weak alcohol-wise to be classified as oh, wine yeah, before. Yeah, they've kind of, yeah, they've redone the alcohol concept. Well, actually... So, yeah. so like <laughs> I said... There is one small bit of... Well, there might be something to do to this, though, which is that currently still wine can't be sold in 200 milliliter quantities and sparkling wine can't be sold in 500 milliliter allowance. Mm-hmm. And now, and the Wine GB chief executive, Nicola Bates, said, we welcome the chance to harmonise still and sparkling bottles. That seems relatively harmless. But what it's not about is this amazing thing. We're all going to be drinking a pint of wine each, which, which has been the way it's been portrayed across every single sort of yeah. Tory newspaper. Which I have to say is also my impression of what a large glass is now in most bars. I'm all. I'm, I am forever shocked by the amount of wine people pour when you ask for like yeah, a large. See, I, I'm just trying to think of an occasion where I would want a pint of wine rather than a bottle of wine, and I can't think of one. Why would you not just order a bottle of wine? Zoe, one of the ugliest stories over Christmas was James Cleverly's hilarious joke about using the date rape drug rohypnol on his wife. Um, I mean, obviously, he didn't do it, but telling the joke, uh, what, what what does this tell us? Cleverly's supposed to be one of the more reasonable ones, isn't he? Well, people say this about James Cleverly, but I don't know. I mean, I can't remember the exact wording, but I would suggest listeners Google James Cleverly pop bitch to hear the terrible thing he said, apparently. Allegedly, oh, it's being reported by comment. Ava Santina again today, so yeah. people will find people it quite easily. People can find easily. it. Um, and then, of course, there's the whole shithole fiasco yeah. in the House of Commons. Which and he now, now denies, by the way. He was on the Today programme and he flat out said, no, I didn't say it. And they said, but people heard you say it. Mm. And he says, well, I'm the one that said it. So I'm telling you, I didn't say it. I just think now there's several instances of this man saying pretty offensive things that you definitely should, definitely should not be saying as mm. Home Secretary. And... I think in some ways you might argue that there are some voters who kind of like a politician who says it as it is, who has a bit of laddie banter. But, I mean, a Home Secretary making a joke about drugging his wife or making a joke about using a drug that's used to incapacitate and sexually assault women is in... Well, I don't need to even explain in what poor taste it is. And I think also the fact that Rishi Sunak just said... I have confidence in him. Case closed. Didn't require an apology. Didn't put out any proper statement. He's a prime minister who says he cares about violence against women and girls. He always points to his daughters as a reason for why he would and how much yeah. he cares about it. But if he won't even acknowledge the severity of a joke like that being made in a public forum by a minister of state, 
in context of all the terrible failures of the Conservative government to get on top of uh, rape convictions, mm. to get on top of the fact that two women a week in the UK are murdered by a partner or ex-partner, it just shows A, a Prime Minister who is weak and who doesn't really mean the things he says, um, and B, a um, that he has got people around him who don't take these things seriously, even when they're in... That's in yeah. his brief to care about those things. So I don't think James Cleverly is a particularly stand-up bloke. I think we've seen evidence of the things he says are inappropriate and offensive. And I think the Prime Minister is weak if he doesn't actually take him to account on this. I think it's uh, it's just an appalling thing to have mm. reported. Alex, just to wrap this bit up, someone we probably would have done quite a big bit on if uh, if uh, they'd passed away in the normal run of, oh God, what now? Jacques Delors mm. died two days after Christmas. Um, unfortunately, probably best known in this country for the sun's up yours to law's front page as a high point of loutish um, Europhobia uh, back in 1990. But there is a lot more to his legacy. Well, yes, as shocking as this might seem, yes. there is more, more than that. Yes. There is more, more to a, 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 an era defining uh, European politician than a sun headline. Um, I mean, he is, I guess, as close to a founding father as the current iteration of the European Union has. Yeah. Um, he was the architect of the single market um, with the support of Margaret Thatcher, I should say, because yeah. before, before the Conservatives decided to begin defining their relationship to Europe as one of handbagging, yeah. um, you know, they were really on board with the whole thing. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, Margaret Thatcher uh, approved his first end uh, candidacy for uh, European Commission president and his reappointment. Like I said, he had a vision for Europe, whether you agree with it or not, is beside the point. Um, the truth is that his, um, his the course that he charted towards a single currency, towards a single market, towards federalized structures is the course on which uh, the European Union is proceeding at the moment. Um, and his life story is incredibly interesting. I would, I would advise people to find a good international obituary. Um, you know, Wall Street Journal wrote a very, very good one um, because he's... His humble beginnings um, and religious beliefs are in really stark contract with his socialist politics yeah. and his fiscal restraint. He is in many ways the first centrist. It's. Mm. I know that sounds like a really weird <laughs> thing to say, but this idea like of, guy more and this more. idea of sort of liberal social values but fiscal restraint and charting a course that's not revolution but of nudging the state to the service of as many people as possible yeah. is really very, very modern. Um, so he's a very interesting character. Mm. Well, maybe one day we'll be able to run a show with the headline, We Fought Delors and Delors Won. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Now, time with the very first question of the year from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. It's fresh and crisp and even like new snow. This week, Paul from St. Leonard's asks, 
much as we all raged against Tim Martin from Witherspoons getting a knighthood for his services to Brexit, there are always people on the honours list who genuinely earn their gong through good works. Exactly what you were just saying. Mm. Would members of the panel accept knighthoods or OBEs if they were for services to podcasting or services to defeating Brexit eventually or even just to please their mums? To please my mum? Yeah. Yes. What about for services to podcasting? <laughs> I don't think I deserve that. No, well, you yeah. guys deserve that. Yeah, but you're part of the team. Um, okay. Yeah. If we all got one. Yeah. Yeah. A I'd joint do that. one. A joint one. Why not? That would really go down badly, <laughs> yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh, look at all of these woke <laughs> wokesters in one big chunk. There's about thirty of us all sent straight to the Lords to start legislating. Yeah. I would actually see. There is the, an element of trade-off, there, isn't it? It's like if it's an OBE then that really is nice for your mum, but it confers no power. Mm. But you are sort of endorsing the whole corrupt honour system. Mm. If it's a peerage, yes, you are endorsing the whole mm. corrupt honour system, but also you actually do get to be a working functional yeah. lord. Yes. And, or oh, I'd take, yeah. take a peerage. I'd take a peerage, for sure. The, the committee is listening, Alex, say it louder. <laughs> You'd take a peerage. I'd take a peerage, for sure, because yes. I reckon I could do a fucking job. I think you'd be quite good. You'd be quite you good know, lord. like... I have some skills I could actually bring to the job because of yes. my background. So I would take a period. You'd bring uh, the average age down quite a lot as well, which would be good. <laughs> That's very kind of you to say. So. Would you be Lord, and, Lord Andrea of Mykonos? Would you go for Mykonos or would you go for Bermondsey? Oh, Mykonos would be rather lovely. Then Le- Lord Lebedev. Well, <laughs> of Siberia, yes. Because yes. then, then that would bring sort of uh, honour to my place of birth. It would well. certainly yeah, shush up the Lords. Oh, you're really it would shush up the Lords it in a big way. It to happen. Yeah. Are you listening, Keir? Yeah, it's just like, you know, um, bit more vibe but, chamber. Yeah, but an OBE, I wouldn't get out of bed for that, to be honest. Really? Yeah, no. Well, why, why not? not because first. they're pointless. They, they, they just co-opt you into the system. Yeah. I might take a knighthood. <laughs> might, might take a knighthood. Okay. I so, might take a knighthood. Although they, there's some rule, isn't there, that if you're, if you're a foreigner, you can't use the title, sir. Excuse me, Lebedev. No, no, but but he's Lord Lebedev, isn't yeah. he? Peerage is a different Oh, oh sorry, you're right. No, yeah, so knighthood, I think you can Bob Geldof, is, but he sort of, he uses... Because I think Bob Steven P- Spielberg has had one, but he can't, like I said, you yeah. can't use the title, sir. Yeah, so, no, bugger that. Okay, fair I, If I can't use the title. Which ge- geographical uh, distinction oh, would you take? I guess it would be of Wakefield. That's pretty good. Yes, yeah, it's good. It's it's fine. It's not as good as Mykonos. I, I mean, I have to say, uh, no, can <laughs> I just say, Grunewald of Baroness Grunewald of, of Wakefield, Wakefield has a fantastic. It, has it a, is good. I might change my, my Twitter mind. handle actually because it is it is a little bit. It is a little bit like a Viking came and conquered Wakefield, <laughs> basically, <laughs> and invaded their fiefdom. Yeah, when, when I hear Baroness Grunewald at the back of my mind, I mean, dee, 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 yeah, it dee, should be dee, Valkyrie Grunewald. It is Valkyrie Grunewald of Wakefield. I would, I would take it just for, yeah, just for that. You sound like you're about to execute people. Yeah. Baroness Grunewald. Would you take one, Andrew? Me, well, I mean, it's the whole, on the David Bowie principle, no because it is a bad system and it shouldn't exist. And it's, you know, it reward, as we've seen this year in revolting ways, it just rewards cronyism mm. and it rewards pretty much everything dreadful about politics. That said, a peerage where you can actually do things, I think it's absolutely terrible for everybody except me because I would be good at it. Um, so I don't know. I think uh, there's already a Lord Anfield, so that's not, I couldn't have that. 
So uh, I don't know. Uh, Baron Harrison of Stoke Newington has a certain je ne sais quoi. Fancy. Also Stoke Newington, you know, really wine people. <laughs> Lord Harrison of Woke Newington. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, uh, Paul, we hope that uh, we hope that helped. Um, I can't believe you betrayed your Scouse roots. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, listeners, you can back us on Patreon and ask your questions too in uh, your emails. Surely just... it has to be Count Harrison of Scouse. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a geographical location, Alex. It is now. <laughs> Barring a late change of heart by Rishi Sunak, the next general election will be at some point this year. Before then, he's looking to cram the statute book with as many potential vote winners as he can, possibly two pint bottles of wine, who knows? So we're going to have a look ahead at the rest of 2024. Zoe, first up, are we any closer to a clear idea of when this election is going to be? Because Hunt announced a March the 6th budget over Christmas, which made everybody go mad and bet on a May election. And then this weekend, the Sunday Times has Isaac Levido penciling in November the 14th, which seems like a horrible time for an election. Is there any is there any good dates left for the Conservatives now? I think we all lost our minds a little bit about the May election budget on the 6th thing. The budget mm. is always about that in March. I don't think yeah. it necessarily indicated that there was going to be a May election. I think... It it would be wise to have a May election um, for a number of reasons. First of all, they could sort of take away the sting of the, the locals and yeah. by-elections that are coming up. They could also get ahead of all those people who are about to remortgage and get even more angry about the cost of living. They could avoid the influx of small boats that's going to happen as the weather gets better over the summer. And they can ride off the back of a spring budget with lots of tax cuts if they wanted to. But to be honest, I think... It probably will be uh, autumn. It probably will be November or late October. Um, and I think that's because they'll Sunak is just a desperate man. He'll push it as long as he mm. can. He doesn't want to go. Why would you you know, get rid of that power? Always going to hope that something might happen. And if you go early, you might always wonder if something would have happened that would have given you that boost. Um, so they're kind of no good dates for the Conservatives to go to the polls because they will lose. Um, but I think they probably yeah. should go in May, but knowing Sunak, he'll go in October, November. It's, it's always too early until you realise it's too late. Exactly. I, d I don't think he's going to go in October, by the way. I think if he goes in the autumn, he... It has to be after the American election yeah. because then at least if Trump does well, he can ride that wave a little bit. But is and there a wave of that in Britain? Because even the... There is an argument to be made that Starmer would have a tough time, tough time with, Trump, um, yeah. with, uh, with the states. But uh, everybody, we've all seen this before, everybody has a tough time with Trump. I know. And if we elected a clone of we, Donald we're Trump We're not assessing country, whether these things are, are right or not. Yeah. We're just saying that's how the story goes. But the point is, if you're going to go then, why would you go the last week of like the American pre-election um, mm. uh, fervor? You would go after if you th if you think that Trump is going to win, you would go after to suggest there's some kind of yeah. If Trump did win, is there not also an argument that there'd almost be a reverse in that? so many people be worried about Trump's victory sure. that they might be more likely to actually vote for Starmer as yeah. a more stable government compared to the Conservatives. I mean, you could go either way. You could ride the populist wave or yeah. the populist wave could well, backfire. Well, which is why I think the, the story about Levido penciling mm. in the 14th of November is, I mean, it's desperate. It, uh, you see, I, I think it's going to be May, June. Mm. 
because because well because as I've said many many times before the the one strategic advantage you have as prime minister is being able to call the election on the date of your choice right you wouldn't give that up mm. and so if the stories coming out are that it's going to be November then clearly it's going to be May June because the whole point is to work your opponents into believing a, a date other than the date you're actually going to do it on. And it's better for them to be less prepared yeah. and go early. So so the more we yeah. hear stories about the autumn, the more convinced I become that it's going to be May, June. Their best bet of keeping um, stability, keeping the party together and trying to get on the back of that wave of people yeah. thinking maybe the Conservatives will make them better off is riding on the back of tax cuts. Yeah. Yeah. It's all it's all they can talk about. They yeah. have no other vision. Promised and, yeah. tax and, cuts rather than real Yeah, ones. promised tax cuts, yeah. <laughs> and I think Alex was talking about this on Start Your Week on the Bunker. They are, the big thing that's hanging over the summer is if the weather is nice, there will be more small mm, boats. Absolutely. And yeah. they absolutely can't go after an increase in small boats. No. So it's probably... Um, Probably on the Glastonbury weekend when all the wokesters are out taking drugs <laughs> in a field, exactly like the, uh, the the referendum. Alex, looking at more immediate things that are happening within the next few weeks, things that could colour the election, much postponed post-Brexit border controls on goods entering the UK are supposed to start this month. Yes, the on the of 31st Jan- of January. Yeah. Yeah. Um, their landing just as sentiment against Brexit is, probably, is at its peak so far mm. and will probably only rise. Um, how do you think that's going to play out this year? I mean, we're going to be for the first time that goods coming into the country will be examined and the government itself estimates that it will add £330 million a year in additional red tape charges and add 0.2% to inflation. How do you think it's going to play out? Um, it's going to uh, make prices go up. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what it's going to be. So it, just to give listeners an idea, um, medium risk plant and animal products. Um, so that includes products that contain raw milk, like cheese, yeah. um, meat, um, salamis, all that kind of stuff. Coming into the UK will have to submit a health certificate, um, which costs up to 43 quid. Um, so, especially for SMEs, yeah. like mm. delis and places like that that import a lot of that produce, that will add a lot to their costs. Um, you know, maybe a massive supermarket that can do like a whole container of one thing that just requires one certificate, um, you know, can write that off. But a small business, and we've already seen a preview of that with Northern Ireland, a small business that needs to have a a mixed um, shipping container of all kinds of different things, each of which requires a different certificate, you know, it will be absolutely screwed. So I think we will see some things, some more things, I should say, disappearing from Mm -hmm. our shelves um, because we have seen a lot already. And we will see some uh, small and medium businesses close because this will be, you know, their their profit margin will be small and this will be the last straw, basically. Yeah. You raised the enticing and slightly frightening idea of the high-risk animal Important. Was that like what, like a live boa constrictor or something? You know, no, I think, a bucket of scorpions. No, I think that's because you already require 
some sort of certificate for yes. that. For, for Hopefully, high, importing right. large scorpions. <laughs> and, yes, hyenas and things like that. Um, but we've quietly dropped UK product certification. We're just going to stick with the EU one. We've just rejoined Horizon. <laughs> although, um, what's her name? Gillian Keegan said, it's amazing. We've joined Horizon. Everybody went, I know. I have two letters for you that you forgot. Um, our kind of uh, old Romaniac warning that we'd just end up aligning with the EU has come true, hasn't it? No, I mean, no. These are small sops, I think, to... Oh, bit um, by bit, though. Yeah, bit by bit. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the problem is that none of this stuff so far, which is why when we're discussing this thing, we talk a lot about phytosanitary, phyto and phytosanitary um, uh, regulations, like aligning with that or professional qualifications or reciprocal arrangements like that, they're important because they anchor you into EU regulation. None of the... Horizon doesn't anchor you into mm. EU regulation. So it doesn't stop the drift away. It doesn't mm. stop the divergence, as it were. They are important, but they don't suggest dynamic alignment. The important things will be stuff that is dynamically aligned to current EU regulation, like the fight and phytosanitary. Um, so if Labour come in and do a deal on fight and phytosanitary uh, products, which they have said they will, that anchors you into EU legislation dynamically. It means that if they yeah. change something, you have to change it over here. And that is important. This is just kind of fixing around the edges, mm. stuff that we broke a few yeah. years ago. Sticky tape. Zoe, um, something that you pointed out before the show is that this is going to be the first general election that's going to happen under voter ID rules. Mm. We've not actually had a general, but we had the, um, the disasters of the locals. What are you hearing about how people people within politics have have taken the voter ID um, legislation? Do they think it is as big a mistake as as we think? It's difficult, isn't it? I think when you talk to pollsters, they're quite worried about or they express that um, there are concerns about turnout and what that could do to certain groupings. But it's actually quite a mixed bag. You hear some people say, actually, this is more of a problem for the Conservatives because it's not just about whether people have ID, it's about whether people carry ID around with them. Mm. Because you might go to the polling station on your way to work with your wallet and you have your driver's license. Most young yeah. people will have a driver's license in there. So it's not a big deal. Whereas... An older generation who go out deliberately to vote or, you know, they more rural areas might be less likely to carry ID with them and mm. might be then less likely to come back again. But then, of course, there's the suggestion that actually it harms Labour more um, because you have... Um, it, more disenfranchised groups who don't have ID. And actually, after the local elections, um, they they think about 14,000 people were turned away. And a lot of these were disenfranchised groups, so unemployed, uh, people with disabilities, pe people from certain ethnic backgrounds. Um, but I do wonder if some of it is just there's a, an almost a silence around it because they're not quite sure who yeah. it plays into, who, who mm. benefits from mm. it. Um, and of course, we're still waiting to see actually how many people would be affected. So yeah. this is going to be like a trial run for that. So it's going to be really interesting to see how many people say they're turned away during this, um, during this next general election. If they do go later in the year to a general election, we'll have another almost test run, dry run of local elections yeah. beforehand, where hopefully there'll be yet more information about needing to take your ID with you, right? If we go earlier 
then it's been a year since the last time people took to the polls. You know, it's very possible that people will have forgotten they needed to take ID with them. So it's likely to have a bigger effect. Um, but yeah, it's difficult. I think it will be interesting to see how many people are turned away because of it this time and actually which side of the political spectrum it affects more because it mm. might not be as clear cut as it just impacting Rob Labour. Ford, friend of the podcast, mm -hmm. thinks it won't have a significant mm. um, effect. Just the, the that basically it's not all, one con all concentrated on one side yeah. of the political divide and the numbers are so small that you would need a very heavy mm. concentration for one or the other for it to make a dent. That doesn't make it, it doesn't have an impact personally to the people mm. who are turned away there. And we mm. need to disaggregate yeah, a, those two things. You yeah. know, the personal impact is devastating. Yeah, the, the, and, the, the personal, and also the principle yeah. is, is hugely important. Yeah. The actual electoral impact might be. I mean, I, one of my big predictions for the coming 10 years, I think, is that <laughs> Bold. Between, well, <laughs> between this um, story and the issues with uh, immigration, and especially like the Home Office losing thousands of asylum seekers that they just don't know where they are anymore. I think all this is driving inexorably to the introduction of ID cards. Mm -hmm. um, I think that will be the solution mm -hmm. rather than making ID non-mandatory um, for voting. I think the solution will be that everyone has an ID card because I, I can't I can't see any government actually getting hold of the uh, the immigration issue mm -hmm. without a way to somehow yeah. know who is in the country, which they don't at the moment. I mean, it's mental. Mm. To me as a European, it's just crazy. This idea that it's terribly unsafe for you to have an identity card, but mm. it's not unsafe for you to be, photo, you know, to be offering multitudes of bills and stuff with your name and address on to be photocopied by yeah. every library yes. you join in every bank. Mm. To me, that's the unsafe bit, right? Mm. Not having a card. We should probably do an entire edition on, on ID cards. Yeah. Mm. It's like it's fascinating. But I anyway, think I, think, I think those two trends are driving mm. towards yeah. that, actually. Well, I mean, I was really against them last time around when uh, when the Blair government wanted to to bring them in. Um, largely on the on the element of principle, in that, like you know, you, you have to make an unanswerable case mm. for bringing this stuff in, rather than just go, uh, it you know, it is important for these small security matters. But we now live in a completely digitized mm. society where every single one of us gives away a ton of information. A ton like we leave of a data, we leave a data trail behind yeah. us, <laughs> and the ability to kind of object on the grounds of sort of personal, uh, you know personal security and personal privacy is very, very hard to make. But, but also we're quite empowered as individuals. So if there was some sort of central system, you could actually go to the government and say, yeah. here's yeah. 12 quid, show me everything you have on me. And that, you can't do that now. No. I don't think people understand because it's not particularly sexy or interesting how much money it costs the government every year having all these fragmented yeah. legacy yeah. systems across Whitehall where there is no joined up. You, anyone who's tried to interact yeah. with HMRC will know it's not joined up with DWP or whatever. This is all true. Good luck selling it to people who think 5G <laughs> phones are putting chips in your brain. True. Right. Good luck. You can't. Yeah, but well, I mean, but, yeah. but also if that's the core of the right of centre base, the, the kind of the, the sort of the, the horrible deep core of it, 
I would get the popcorn in for that conversation mm. when it happens at some point over the next 10 years because people who think that... Five-minute cities. Yeah. yeah. I'll settle for a 15-minute city, but if you've got a five-minute one, I'll take that too. If people think that the COVID vaccine is tracking you, mm. they are not going to like an ID card, are they? Well, getting back to 2024, because that's yeah, 10 yeah. years ahead. Um, one one more thing, which is, which, I mean, you mentioned, you know, the idea that the, that the prime minister has in their power the ability to spring at a general election on an unsuspecting opposition and find them unprepared and all asleep in their beds. Well, I mean, Labour, I've never known Labour be so prepared for a general election as they are right now. This very week, Starmer's key pollster, whose name escapes me, has been terrifying the Labour Party with tales of how a lead can crumble. Keir Starmer this week is going to warn that apathy amongst disillusioned voters could keep the Conservatives in. Who is he warning? Is he warning his own party? Uh, interesting question. I think that message is a really strong message because it actually appeals to lots of different groups, yeah. even in the electorate. Labour are trying to put clear water between themselves and the Conservatives now in the run-up to the election, which is all about Labour loves the rules and the Tories don't. So they're going to talk about how they're going to get rid of sleaze, they're going to wipe it out, they're, yeah. they're a fan of international obligations, they're a fan of uh, constitutional yeah. obligations. Prison sentences for cronyism, Yeah, they don't, show trials, yeah, bring it on. Get all the money back, all the wasted money from procurement mm, and VIP mm, lanes, etc, yeah. etc. And what I think is clever about this is it not only appeal, appeals to those sort of once Conservative voting, swing voters who just don't like the fact that there's no more integrity in the Conservative mm. Party, it also appears appeals to the disillusioned group um, of people who think that Westminster just doesn't care about yeah. the working uh, the working people and voters. And it also appeals to the party because it gives them a strong message and it actually kind of slightly, I think, neutralises that attack that's always thrown at Labour, which is you're irresponsible with money because they can say you're irresponsible and yeah. you also are untrustworthy with money, with public money. Yeah. So I actually think it's a really good message. Um, and I think, I don't, don't know if that answers your question, it appeals, there's something for everyone in it. Um, yeah. It's kind of a really British version yeah. of Drain the Swamp, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think it does appeal, there is a certain kind of atavistic thing in the British voter that's, that is across the, the spectrum. Absolutely everybody wants to punish the bastards. Mm. They're just can't agree on who the bastards are. Yeah. <laughs> and now we can. Now, if, the, if Starmer can accurately and precisely cast the bastards as the people who robbed you, lied to you, mm. spent your money, conned you. And then partied. And then partied. Yeah. Then who doesn't want to turn up with popcorn for that? Yeah, And absolutely. also weirdly taps into the immigration debate as mm. well in that... A lot of what's fueling that is a sense that people are not following the rules. Yeah. And and so mm. I th I think someone saying we're going to re-establish the rules and make sure everyone follows them yeah. actually appeals to that crowd mm. too. I think mm. one of the unifying things across the British voting landscape is this is a country of people who queue up for things. Mm. <laughs> and well, if you address the people the who queue up for things... Yeah. Then you're onto you something. Know, and business. And business. Yeah. You know, what business needs is predictability. Mm. Yeah. It can cope with this ideological direction or that ideological direction in terms of mm. fiscal policy. What yeah. it can't cope is with the rules changing every six months. Yeah. That is not an environment in which you can invest. And so all of that, I think, is, is a win-win for mm. Labour. And 
that brings us to the end of the first Oh God, What Now of 2024. Thanks to Lady or Baroness Zoe Grunwald of <laughs> Wakefield. Thank you very much. She's fluttering yeah. her ermine. And thank you to uh, Lord Alexandreo of Mykonos. My pleasure. Party on. Stay tuned for the extra bit after our beloved theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And also the traditional thank you to our army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without any adverts, plus loads more. Just search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. It's a brand new year. God knows what it's going to do to us, but we hope you'll be with us throughout. We'll see you next time. So that's hello and happy new year to wonderful new backers, Lee Wallace, Aaron Bennett and Jonathan Seltzer. And a big shout out from me and welcome aboard to Michael Lines, Nick and Christine Inez. A huge thanks for your support from me to Vanessa Payne, Emma Page, returning to the fold, lapsed Patreon backer Simon Patterson, and a special shout out to David Bunce in Austria, whose house I drove past as we were driving through <laughs> a snow-covered pass. And he said 20 minutes early and you could have come in for cheese and wine. Well, I'll take you up on that next time, David. Happy New Year. Oh God, What Now is presented by Podmasters Group Editor Andrew Harrison with Alex Andreu and Zoe Grunewald. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis and the producers were Chris Jones and me for the pre-pre-antepenultimate time, Alex Reese. That's five away from the last one, by the way. Socials by Jess Harpin and Kieran Leslie. Art direction by James Parr and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit exclusively for Patreon backers. For some reason, the world and his, her wife started doing the ins and outs over Christmas. Labour's in was the opportunity to change Britain and their outs included Tory sleeves and having to pull your own teeth out. That's definitely in the outs column because you can't get a dentist. Um, I noticed friends, friends of the Earth also did the ins and outs. The ins were suing the government and hedgehogs. The outs were coal mines, fossil fuels and lists like these, which I think is pretty good. I'm going to give you the social history of the ins and outlets now. Okay. It originated in the End fanzine in Liverpool in 1981 or 82 or something like that. The End was a football fanzine put together by the guys who went on to form The Farm and also the writer Kevin Sampson, novelist, writes about football and related matters. He wrote the incredibly, the uh, ICB's incredible Hillsborough drama. uh, which was out last year. Basically, it was just a, it was the original fanzine about football and trainers yeah, yeah. and terrorist culture and all the rest of it. And they used to do the ins and outs page, which they admitted was just to confuse people. They'd wait till something got <laughs> fashionable and they'd stick it in the in the outs column, and they'd put ridiculous things in the ins column. I found an ins and outs column from the end in 1982, and amongst dozens of scores of ins and outs, in Paul Weller's new haircut. Drinking your gyro and getting struck by lightning was in the ins column. And in the outs column, bobble hats at derby matches, Tony Wilson and saying Roger instead of OK is in the outs column. So can't be doing that. So we have decided to choose our own ins and outs. Alex, what's in your ins column? OK, um, so I'm going to do them as pairs. OK. Because they are very much pairs. So I will say in... Aggregating services. Oh, right. Out As in... Exclusive streaming. Okay, so I Okay, guess... I am sick and tired of having to sign up to 12 new streamers. Yes. And I think that is near its death now. Mm. I think um, you can already see companies like Amazon kind of 
having channels, mm -hmm. you know, hosting other streaming services as channels. Yes. And I think it's only a matter of time before they go buy this package and you get all of these channels. And this is what I want and what I need. I can't be bothered <laughs> anymore to sign up to loads of different services and then forget I've signed up to them for the free period and find out six months later on my statement that I've been paying for a fucking thing I've not been using. Maybe what they'll do is they'll uh, they'll aggregate these things into like a kind of a continual thing where you just turn it on and they show them one after the other. Maybe they put the news <laughs> and the weather between it as well. I don't think so. That sounds ridiculous. Like, like a channel. They could play the national anthem of the country. Like, yeah, yeah, it's a crazy <laughs> idea. The whole family could It's funny you should say that because also... That was just a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like to hear it and get a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without the ads and a day early, then you can sign up and back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. And you'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast Oh God What Else, which is with you every Monday morning. Oh, and this merchandise as well. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.